started. Um, yeah. So, so I left in early yesterday. So um, were there any sticking points or stuff that people want want to discuss more? Um, you can just type it in the chat, or yeah, anyone can bring up anything that they want to like talk about. So while we're waiting for them, <clears throat> we should just start a discussion for you and yeah. I, and then hopefully others will join us as we. Yeah, uh, we, we were just having a, a discussion. I was actually replying to you right now, and then I I realized that I should just join the chat and talk to you about it here. Like, so there was this um, article by by Zizek um, on Seminar 20. Uh, so it's, it's, on, it's in one of the books that is a commentary to Seminar 20, which is uh, Lacan's major work on love and uh, feminine sexuality and so on. So I guess what made me look at that seminar and uh, Zizek's article was uh, the discussion yesterday about, um, about sexuality in Deleuze and... Uh, in Lacan and so on. So it just got me kind of uh, thinking. So, yeah, Kent, like, what, what did you make of that, uh, of that article about what Zizek had to say about Well, like I was writing back, you know, I, I find uh, that Zizek makes things uh, seemingly interesting, to, uh, seemingly easy to understand. Um, mm -hmm. But then I always yeah. run into the problem of, you know, he's always saying, uh, uh, you know, whatever this thing you think is impossible, that is the thing that you ought to be thinking. And then as soon as he tells you that and you yeah. say, oh, OK, that makes sense. Then he then he throws you another whammy. <laughs> it takes yeah. you in a completely different direction. And so you end up in some place where you never thought you would be. So anyway, that that's kind of my uh, <clears throat> my overall reaction to Zizek. But anyway, um, uh, and, and I consider I consider that sophistry. You know, uh, I think he's uh, excellent at uh, that. But anyway, um, that particular idea of uh, you know the zeroth institution within the structural. Yeah. Um, relation of the moieties in villages that Levi-Strauss talks about, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And um, so because I was just reading up about the, the, uh, the paralogisms of psychoanalysis and uh, I, I sort of, I'm more inclined to do what uh, Deleuze himself kind of does, which is like you kind of pull out different uh, ideas from different thinkers and try to see like where you can have like a conversation between them. So the kind of the resonances that I see with Zizek's take on uh, sexual difference with the example of zero institution is this is is sort of uh, it's similar to how to what Deleuze and Gattari say about um, about signs and how they are recorded on the uh, how the body how they're sort of recorded on the surface of the body without organs. So so just to sort of give like a quick overview of that article first. Um, so the way Zizek, uh, so one of the things that Zizek is tackling in that article is sort of the stereotype of uh, Lacan that uh, when he says um, that he that, that there's like a very sim simplistic understanding and he's like, oh, you know, people think that he's kind of reducing sexuality to like this binary heterosexual versus 
uh, homosexual or whatever. And then when he's talking about sexual difference, he's somehow reducing men and women to like, like he's essentializing them or or whatever. But then he kind of says he gives, but then he's like, no, that's not what's happening. And then um, he he kind of what I appreciate is that he sort of quickly jumps into an example and he says, okay, let's try to think of this through the example of the zero institution in uh, Levi Strauss. So um, so Levi Strauss has this um, concept of the zero institution, which derives from uh, his kind of um, understanding of this of the of this tribe. Like he studied this tribe, and there's a and the, the thing about the tribe is that even though it's one tribe, it's it's kind of divided into two sections or two like a, there's like a hierarchy where one is superior to the other or whatever, and then both of these. Um, sub-tribes are given, uh, they're sort of asked to draw what is their idea of the society they, are, they, they live in, sort of like a geographic representation of the, of the village or whatever that they are in. And they both, both of these sub-tribes um, kind of have like a totally different visual rendering of their physical space. So he says that, why, why does that happen? So um, I'll just pull up the article, like what? Yeah, so he says that, um, yeah, so they kind of construe these, uh, the space in a very different way, um, but they perceive the village as a circle. So that's common, but then one subgroup sees, uh, construes it as as a circle within a circle, um, so that there are two concentric circles or whatever, and then the other group sees it as as a circle split into two by a clear dividing line or whatever. So they're quite different understandings of their space. And then Zizek sort of asked, like, why does this happen? And we shouldn't kind of reduce this to like, okay, just because there's like a power, like a hierarchy between these two groups, uh, we shouldn't say that, okay, so this affects their perception of their social space as well. Um, but what he says that there's, there's like a fundamental antagonism here, which is that uh, there's like a, you know, he kind of resorts to this language of the trauma. He said, this is actually, there's like a traumatic kernel here. Like there's like a desire for harmony, for a harmonious whole, uh, which kind of, uh, which the community kind of wants. Like they want like this stable community. They want to be a part of a whole, which they don't have. So because of that, they're kind of, because of this wound or whatever, uh, they have like a different rendering of their space or what it kind of affects their perception of the space and so on. Um, but the point is that, um, yeah, the point is that between this gap between these two communities, uh, like there is that irreducible gap, right? The trauma or whatever. Uh, so Zizek says that it is this gap that is sort of like this irreducible trauma uh, that cannot be rendered into any language. That is what what we call the real. That is the real uh, in Lacanian uh, terms. And then, um, but then he kind of brings like a like an interesting political spin on it where he says that but isn't this like the site of uh, struggle for like uh, hegemony over like meaning making and so on uh, and the space kind of gets determined by the language of like nationalism uh, like even sexuality or whatever so this is where like the this is like a, the real is actually like a ground for uh, struggle over meaning making and so on so i found that quite interesting that rendering of the real as like a ground for like a space where this kind of meaning making can happen, uh, and which is why I I I don't want to see uh, like the sexual difference. Uh, so the sexual difference is also kind of like a difference based on like this primordial trauma or whatever. Like so, I I kind of see that as not being reducible to like 
uh, man versus woman or like simplistic renderings uh, so to say and the parallel with uh, deleuze comes in is where um, because they talk about one of the paralogisms of uh, psychoanalysis is that um, when certain signs are recorded uh, you know as a consequence of the uh, of the synthesis uh, they are construed in certain rigid ways and edipus is a consequence of that uh so what i see there is that the bwo where this recording happens is is something similar to the real in the sense that the struggle over making sense of the signs uh kind of happens uh, on that surface of the bwo as well so that's how i kind of see that um that parallel and uh, yeah i'm not sure how productive that is but yeah like any questions or comments i'm i'm not sure i entirely understand the concept of trauma there um so like the the trauma for jijek would be in in the specific context of the tribe uh like wanting to be whole or whatever but the the point is that uh he calls it the zero institution because it is just like this blank space like it it could have any kind of meaning that you want um it's just like a it's it's like a, it's a fundamental antagonism that cannot be it cannot be expressed by either of the two uh, sub communities because uh they are going through it sort of like ideology like you're living through it and you can't entirely express it or you don't have the tools to express it like what's affecting you or whatever so um so i kind of see it as 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 that yeah does that make sense not entirely um okay which which part of that i can I I so the with uh Levi Strauss's study these uh two segments of the tribe um kind mm-hmm. of uh diagram the relationship between the segments in different ways one where they yes. were kind of uh subdivisions and one where one was um kind of within the other what's yeah. the actual antagonism there All right though? um because they don't they even though they both are uh like to an outsider you know we see them as one tribe uh or they or they may themselves kind of see as a uh, part of like one community so one local example i can give is how there are certain uh, so we have the caste system in india right so we have certain people who belong to the lower caste but they are still kind of upwardly mobile but they would like to believe that they are part of like this one community that that this kind of fundamental antagonism that the caste system has introduced that it doesn't kind of exist anymore um and then if you so like so similar to, similar to the tribe if you ask them to draw something like oh what is your idea of this of space like it's like an experiment the the two like communities are going to have totally different renderings and that's where you kind of see the difference you see like there there is an antagonism there because uh the way they are visualizing their immediate space is so completely different otherwise why don't they both just draw like okay two circles there you know that this is the community this is the space we live in so i guess that just serves to highlight that there is an antagonism there but it is irreducible to any kind of like language because they 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 don't kind of have um they don't they don't know how to express it or they're not aware of it or um yeah so i kind of see that as linked to it's like an example for me uh of of the real working there because the real also escapes um any kind of linguistic rendering and uh, and so on so 
uh, I think we should explain what a moiety is. A moiety is oh, yeah. um, a group that does not exchange um, brides with the other group. Or sometimes it, it works the other way, where they have to. They have to, they have to intermarry with the other moiety. Is that your understanding, Free? Uh, yes, but how does that connect to um, the real or uh, sexual difference? I'm just saying that you know this is a, this art this little article that you came up with, which is really good, is oh, uh, yeah. it's assuming that you know what a moiety is, and a moiety is people that uh, groups subgroups within the within the tribe that either do not. Uh, interchange or have to interchange, and uh, and so and so. See what's interesting about this is that you've got the people in the two moieties, and their relationship is a intermarriage kind of relationship or a non-intermarriage kind of relationship. When they're asked to draw the village, they see the village in a completely different way. The two moieties. And it, it yeah. could be it could be that in this case the the uh, the central moiety that that has the concentric circles maybe they don't intermarry with the other uh, moiety and so that creates a class structure within the village, whereas the 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 other moiety sees the uh, division in the village completely different. How how was it that they saw it? Um, they just sort of saw it as like one circle with like a line going through it. Right, a line uh, going through it. So, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, it's just kind of interesting. Uh, so this is related to um, uh, Bourdieu and his idea of habitus. So the the the, the habitus is uh, you know comes from habit. But he was trying to define where it is in the society where the structures um, are that 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 determines behavior, right? So there's, you know, and this is something that Levi Strauss doesn't talk about, but uh, Bourdieu tried to uh, figure it out, and uh, he came up with this idea of habitat. So. So basically, what we're saying, and what this article is saying from a Bourdieu point of view, is that there's a habitus out there that is um, uh, forming the structure that the two groups are seeing in the village, and that those two structures are somehow complementary, and that complementary nature of the two structures is is in the habitus. And then what Zizek is saying is that that, that uh, substructure is this zero institution, which is a, um, what do you call it? A, uh, is responding to some kind of trauma that actually was the thing yeah. that separated the, the moieties in the first place. Yes, yeah. Uh, and then that is the space where, as Deleuze would say, that is the space where um, things like the incest taboo retroactively install an object, like or like a missing object or whatever. So um, that is the space where we come to con construe it as like as lack or um, 
yeah or like Oedipus um and so on yeah so so you know i mean the institution zero is kind of like you know Zizek is always talking about the void it's kind of the void and then the mm-hmm. uh and then out of that void which is a kind of direct you know it gets instituted by the trauma that separated the moities and um and then the uh and then Oedipus you know in our culture is a um a kind of uh, institution that's built on top of the zero institution. Yes. Yeah. So I guess the sorry. Yeah. But just just to say that that Zizek is assuming that there is a lack at the basis yeah. of everything, whereas Deleuze and Guattari are trying to come up with a uh, version of things where there isn't that lack at the basis of everything. So what is the lack that uh, Zizek identifies in this example? Uh, well, he doesn't go on to talk about that, but in general, Zizek is saying that that there, you know, there is this void at the or lack at the heart of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if he tried to talk about what it is, it will be um, akin to installing like a fixed meaning to that void. So instead, he says that. Um, the kind of meanings that we pin, or the, the way we kind of uh, interpret that void um, is actually like this, uh, is what kind of, it's like, it's like an ideological thing. So I'll just quote, like, I'll quote him where he says that, is this not the struggle for hegemony, precisely the struggle over how the zero institution will be overdetermined, uh, colored by some particular signification? And then he goes on to give an example of a nation um, that is an example of a zero institution, a nation that emerges out of like certain historical like contingent uh, necessities, whether uh, previous social links have been dissolving or whatever. So it's like a historically determined uh, function as well. But that that is the space within which this na- the nation comes to install itself. It's uh, on the basis of a void. It could be religion. It could be uh, very like reductive notions of sexuality or uh, anything. So. You know, it's uh, interesting that um, I, yeah, I read a book a, a, quite a long time ago. You know, I can't remember the title or the author or anything, but basically it was making the case that this thing of the moieties was uh, fundamental to all kin- kinship systems. And without the moieties, mm-hmm. you couldn't understand the uh, where where the where the. Uh, the various taboos came from uh, without that initial separation into moieties. And, and they were saying that, that the primal moiety was a kind of, uh, as I remember, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, an idealized moiety where the women were in one moiety and the men were in another moiety. And, um, but, you know, something that's more, plausible is that is that uh what the original trauma was was the the move from matriarchy to patriarchy yeah um that's interesting the move from patriarchy to okay okay that's interesting because that is something that um deleuze mentions in his 
in one of his essays um, on masochism about uh, matriarchy and uh, like its sort of influence on certain psychical structures and so on uh, in the context of uh, of masoch and masochism. Um, but I guess I would like to uh, also go back to the text and um, talk about this, uh, kind of like locate our discussion uh, in the context of like what we were discussing yesterday as well. Because um, so one of the things that happens is like when societies are transitioning, it's perfectly natural for um, yeah, it's perfectly natural for them to transition from one stage to another. Uh, it's just that the question that Deleuze and Gattari would raise is that why is it that certain meanings came to be so something like Oedipus, like why did it become something that is so entrenched in uh, in our particular uh, context under capitalism and, uh, and so on. So that's how um, Oedipus uh, stands out, I guess. Well, I mean, I, I think I, I would say that the um, Oedipus is the ideology of patriarchy, and um, the um, you know, and the and the kind of primal scene is this trans, like I was saying, transition between matriarchy and patriarchy. Um, you know, the matriarchies and the patriarchies are never pure. Yeah. Um, you know, there's certain cultures that have both of them operating at the same time with respect to different aspects of the culture. Um, so, um, for for Deleuze and Guattari, I, I would say that um, Oedipus is an elaboration of the ideology of patriarchy. It's certainly the ideology of modern patriarchy. Um, but yeah. what they would term a savage patriarchy uh, is is kind of pre-Oedipal, not in a developmental sense, but in a historical sense. Oedipus arises sometime after uh, women and families start to be exchangeable. Yeah, I guess we're going to get into that further, the, their definition of the savage stage. Um, yeah, that, that's like all the chapter two is exploring this whole genealogy. And, and to me, the most fascinating part of that is the whole idea of the tattoos. You know, they found that 9,000-year-old uh, man uh, in the Alps, and he had tattoos on his body. And what's interesting about it is that he had Lyme disease, and the tat uh, some of the tattoos were at the acupuncture points that you would use to treat Lyme disease. So, so not only not only but see at first they just thought well he had these strange tattoos on his body, but since that people have analyzed it, you know, who know acupuncture and 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 realize that his disease and the tattoos are correlated. So that makes that makes that makes acupuncture a very ancient thing that is showing up in Europe, not in China. So I, th I think we're going to be able to connect all this really, uh, really fluidly to the content of chapter three. But I think we're struggling a bit to connect it to the section we're on right now. Um, it looks like Enzo has a question, though. Um, if we could talk about the parallel between Kantian critical revolution and schizoanalysis. Did he, where did he put that question? Are you in discussion chat live. 
Uh, no, we decided that we were going to use um, analysis. Well, that's that's a little bit confusing anyway, but yeah. regardless. So discussion chat live. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't personally know a whole lot about Kant. Um, my understanding at kind of a high level is that, sorry, a couple people tried to say things. Uh, yeah, I was asking if I could jump in here for a minute. Go for it. Yeah, so uh, actually it was our last reading that, specifically bringing up Kant, it was our last reading that sort of tied a lot of uh, loose threads for me. Um, you could almost argue that, the, let's say, the, the tools that they're building in, like, let's say, the first chapter, which talks specifically about getting away from this uh, idea of this uh, global object, uh, the individual, per se, and trying to get to this passive idea. In that sense, it's transcendental, right? Because it's a transcendental critique of uh, essentially the identity of a uh, whole object. And so you could make the argument then that the disjunctive syllogism that there's a question, I think, when uh, um, when they say, uh, if somebody asks Judge Schraper, does he believe in God? Um, why, yes, the response should only be on the disjunctive syllogism. So that's coming uh, exactly from the transcendental dialectic. And uh, the disjunctive syllogism is actually Kant's proof of God and the critique of pure reason. So essentially what they're doing is uh, Kant has, uh, has the, you know, Kant has the world, uh, the the self, and God. So you could almost look at desiring production as as the production of the world and uh, the self as the, the the third synthesis of conjunctive of con conjunctive consummation. So in that sense of moving away from the individual, it, it starts from that Kantian framework, to say the least. Yeah, like that they do seem to have pretty clearly modeled their uh their syntheses and especially the, the second one on Kant. The uh disjunctive syllogism they they you know it's of course responsible for what they call miraculation, which is, you know, a very divine term. Uh the energy of it is numen, which relates to the term numinous. Uh, meaning, you know, arousing spiritual or religious emotion. So, recently I read a book called Kant, Deleuze, and Architectonics. And it addresses this problem. Um, and so, basically what this guy says, his name is uh, Willett. Um which I found very interesting was that he said that there is a controversy about the relationship between the table of judgments and the table of categories with respect to relations. And he says in there that what people can't understand is the relationship between uh, disjunction in the table of, of uh, judgments and community in the in the table of um, 
a table of categories. Usually, um, the relationship is that um, uh, it's a generalization and universalization of the judgment when you go from the table of judgments to the table of categories. But he said that there's a controversy within Kantian studies about how disjunction doesn't turn into community directly. And so I thought that was very interesting because basically disjunction is one of the syntheses. And you could see community as being another one of the syntheses. And, uh, and the connective syntheses are the prior syntheses. There's two prior syntheses in uh, those two tables. And so it seemed like what was interesting to me that was that it was a flaw within the Kantian system that uh, somehow Kant seems to have not thought through completely. But it's exactly that flaw which it seems like Deleuze and Guattari have focused in on, which are these relationships, these possible relationships that uh, are posited by Kant in the table of judgments, table of uh, categories. And so, you know, I'm just, I just thought that was really interesting that there's a controversy right over that problem in Kantian studies. And that seems to be what Deleuze and Guattari are focusing on in their books. So do you think they have an adequate solution to it? Uh, uh, yeah, to that flaw? Yeah. So, um, uh, well, okay. So my view is that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are using logic as the basis of their system. So, but there, there's a terminological problem because and is conjunction and or is just, uh, sorry, and, yeah, and is conjunction and or is disjunction in logic usually. But they're using connection for and. And they're, they're positing a, another uh, operator that's not normally in logic for, that they're calling conjunctive. And it, it's really an operator of just uh, juxtaposition. And so, um, and so once you, I think once you see that Deleuze and Guattari are saying that logic is the basis of our understanding of the, of, uh, the unconscious and these, uh, the synth these syntheses of the unconscious, uh, then it gives you something to hang your hat on to say, well, uh, this, you know, because logic is coherent, then what they're saying is coherent. But, it, but it, I have to say that it's a deviant logic. It's not the normal logic. It, it, it's a logic that has with it the idea of conjunction that come from imaginary numbers. And logic usually does not have a conjunctive operator uh, related to imaginary numbers. Wait, where, where are you seeing imaginary numbers? Conjunction is the operation that produces uh, uh, imaginary numbers. Conjunction in the sense that Deleuze and Guattari are using. It's not immediately clear to me how that works. Because what, what I see in their conjunction is uh, the arrangement of series, right? It's, it's conjunction in the sense of 
uh, not leading from one thing into another. That's that's what they call connection, but rather um, recognition of, of an entire sequence of things uh, and traversing a whole path. Okay, so I've been thinking about this, and um, you know, I'd like to suggest an analogy, which is um, so. So, if you look at a table, say an uh, Excel spreadsheet or whatever, you could imagine that that either the columns or the rows are connective syntheses, right? And then you can imagine that if you if if your focus is on the connection of the rows, say, then the uh, columns would be disjunctive or vice versa. Okay, I, I, I buy that. It's, it's kind of taking these uh, connective um, chains and placing them in kind of horizontal relation to one another. Yeah, so, so then the question is, well, how do you get to the um, what they call the conjunctive or the juxtaposition uh, operator, because that's not a normal operator in logic. In logic, it's normally uh, and, or, and then not. Um, and, and the not kind of implies a self-operator, uh, a self-identity operator as well. So you've got self-identity and and not, which they don't talk about, but then you have and and or as as connective and disjunctive syntheses. Those come directly from logic, except the difference is that they want to be able to say and, 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 and they want to be able to say or, 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 or. Well, I think they do have a self-identity operator. It's it's not one of their syntheses, but that's what, kind of what the body without organs is. Uh, good point. Excellent point. I think you're right about that. So, um, so then the question is, well, what is the conjunctive synthesis? So, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna venture on another analogy, which is chess. So, so if you if if you agree that the you know you have these series that are connected. And then you have the juxtaposition, you know, the not the juxtaposition, but the the disconnection between one series and another, the disjunction between uh, one series and another, and that <clears throat> the two of them together give you a table, and that's what we were just talking about. So um, if you look at chess, you can see that it's very interesting how. Um, the different pieces have different connections between the 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 rows and the the uh, the rows and columns, right? And the most interesting of those is the knight, right? Whose moves move back and forth between rows and columns. It's a it's a synthesis of a column rows and and uh, I, I mean column column moves and row moves. But other pieces, you know, like the, you know, the uh, the knights and the rooks, I'm not sorry, not the knights and the rooks, the uh, rooks and the bishops, you know, one of them moves along the diagonals, another one moves along the columns and rows, and then it's the king and queen that synthesize those two possible moves, but their moves are different than the the knight, and so 
um, you can kind of see that the that in chess there's this uh, juxtapositional relationship between moves in columns and moves in rows, and that's almost being embodied by the piece. And and when you look at the board, you're seeing a uh, juxtaposition of pieces on the board. And so I would suggest that 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 conjunctive operator, you know, which is basically the presence of one thing in relationship to the other, is seen in the just the configuration of the pieces on the board, and the pieces are embodying possible relationships between the columns and rows. Now, this this analogy might not be right, but I would suggest that it's close to what they're talking about. And personally, I think that we need more of these kinds of analogies in order to understand what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I think I kind of get what you're going for with, um, with that analogy. Because uh, like in order to evaluate like a whole board state, you, you need to not just recognize the disjunctions of, of the piece against, pieces against pieces, right? At the level of pure disjunction, all traversals amount to the same. Um, but that's not what we that's not what we need on on the uh, to evaluate a board state. We we need to kind of recognize some kind of identity to it. Yeah. Um, which which means traversing a particular series of of, of disjunctions on the board. Yeah. And so the thing I like about analogies like this is that, you know, it's really easy to conceive the differences between these different analogies. And you can see that, it, you know, it's it's almost as if that uh, these syntheses completely explain the relationships of the pieces to the board in chess. And so there's a wholeness to it, even though the different ones are completely different from each other. The different syntheses are completely different from each other, but together they produce some effect, which is the possibility to play games of chess. So Freen has a question in the chat. With a question. Yes, I was just typing it out, yeah. Uh, so my question was because... Um, I know this was a bit far behind in the text where Lumen and Voluptus were mentioned. And I guess I was wondering, why do we need those different uh, levels of energy corresponding to the different synthesis? Because if desire is the driving force um, in itself and desire construed as like this impersonal, free individual force that um, animates the synthesis in the first place, why do we need three different versions of what I see as the same thing, like libido, numen, voluptus. So I guess that was my question. Yeah, the, this question has been bugging me since day one, because it... They the, sound the, nice. I mean, you know, numen, and, but I'm just like, oh, yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah, because, like, they're... First of all, it's not even really clear to me in, in their model what the energy is doing they don't seem to be following kind of a classic psychodynamic thing where we have um you know quantities of energy I, I don't know that they really talk about a quantity of libido at any point 
So what even is it for them, let alone its, its transformations? Yeah. So I guess. Well, I mean, I, I'd kind of like to just, uh, can we step back from that question and, and talk about something more general, which is a huge problem, which is, okay, you know, you got the syntheses, you got the productions, you got the energies, you got the breaks, you got the machine in that little table that O Manifest put up. Um, it's really hard to figure out <clears throat> what are the relationships between these categories of things. Uh, and then, you know, you're talking about with just within the energy category, what are these different energies that they're talking about? And that's, um, I'd say that's very difficult too. I don't have a answer to that. Yeah, so just searching the text for the word energy, it, it shows up on page one. An organ machine is plugged into an energy source machine. For every organ machine and energy machine. I, I understood specifically like libidinous desi desire, what allows the, the flow or the hile to pass through. Yeah, I, I've never been completely sure what the libido is, except it's supposed to be some kind of sexual energy. It seems to be similar to what is called chi and uh, uh, in China. Yeah, I, I, I guess we can pull from um, page one a, a firm proposition for every organ machine and energy machine. So every organ has some flow of energy into it. Uh, so that, that can kind of give us a hint in the direction of what libido is doing. And then they're assuming continuity, and so it's kind of continuity of flow is kind of like their their baseline concept that then just gets cut up. Another quote, doubtless each organ machine interprets the entire world from the perspective of its own flux, from the point of view of the energy that flows from it. So it appears that energy and flow for them might actually be the same thing. Um, at least at the level of desiring production, because desiring production is where we see flows. Energy is a flow, right? I mean, it, it cannot be created or destroyed, it, it, and it's always passing through. Yeah, so it, I, w w what I'm saying is I, I think that these concepts might simply be the same for them. Libido is the energy which flows in desiring production. It, it is identical to the flow that they keep talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's what it, where I was also going with that. Um, so my understanding of like the, the different kinds of energies was specifically that in the same, in the same manner that the paranoiac machine is the avatar of desiring machines, um, that these other forms of uh, energies, uh, new, new, new men and voluptuous are uh, avatars of uh, libidinous desire yeah and i and like it, it seems pretty clear that newman is a selection of libido right it comes from libido it is it it, it is libido arguably 
Um, I think this identification with flow might be a hint as to why it's a new category. Uh, Newman doesn't flow. At the level of the disjunctive synthesis, we're no longer talking about flow. Then the question is, what does it do? Well, Newman, Newman, is, Newman is normally thought of as um, the kind of uh, the way that the transcendent um, impacts the, the uh, you know, the human being. It's numinous. It's normally thought of as numinous related to light. To read the passage where Newman is introduced uh, on page 13, uh, or rather, what if we term, if what we term libido is the connective quote-unquote labor of desiring production, it should be said that a part of this energy is transformed into the energy of disjunctive inscription, Newman, a transformation of energy. But why call this new form of energy divine? Why label it Newman in view of all the ambiguities caused by a problem with the unconscious that is only apparently religious? The body without organs is not God, quite the contrary. But the energy that sweeps through it is divine when it attracts to itself the entire process of production and serves as its miraculous enchanted surface, inscribing it in each and every one of its disjunctions. Yeah, so I think that this relates back to Jaspers. You know, Jaspers is the one who talks about the, the relationship of the transcendent to the human being as existence. And so this it seems to me to be a kind of pointing back to this uh, theme that's running through it, which is the relationship to the transcendent through the transcendental. Energy that sweeps through it. So, so we, that gives us uh, an, an action of this new energy, right? It sweeps. Uh, it inscribes, inscribes production in the disjunctions. Um, I think one way to understand it is that uh, I think when they talk about the body without organs, they talk about it, uh, it, it being as a quasi-cause and stuff like that. So, because uh, essentially the body without organs is created somewhere in desiring and production, in the process of desiring production. So it's a similar manner with the, the, the whole dichotomy of libido and human, because uh, um, it comes essentially from the libido and it's created somewhere as an avatar of that, where that whole desiring production uh, being caused by libidinous desire is like almost like, a first principle for them, to say the least. One thing it could be thought of is is the is the transformation between quantities of energy and uh, qualities of energy. Like intensity. Yeah, like intensities. Yeah, it seems each transformation is a quality quantitative selection, which uh, undergoes a qualitative change. So once you create these discontinuities, then the energy is like trapped within this uh, area and it builds up and perhaps goes through a series of critical points um, as it uh, you know as it as it's transforming. 
uh, non-manifest has just grabbed for us uh, page 18 into 19, the quote uh, for the next transformation. Just as a part of the libido as energy is of production was transformed into energy of recording, Newman, a part of this energy of recording is transformed into energy of consummation, voluptus. It is this residual energy that is the motive force behind the third synthesis of the unconscious, the conjunctive synthesis, so it's, or the production of consumption. So here it's called the motive force behind the third synthesis, so it's the, that which pushes the conjunction along. And I suppose we could understand um, we could understand retroactively the disjunctive synthesis the same way. It's you know these points have to be inscribed. That is an action. Something needs to compel that. This is the energy that does so. So in the accursed chair, Bataille says that what happens when you've got agriculture is you've got this um, surplus, and so you have to decide what to do with that surplus. And so basically, what they're saying here is that there's there's the, the the you know the surf the surplus that's produced at the desiring machine level gets used as the uh, the Newman, and then that that uh, surplus at the recording level uh, becomes the uh, you know the surplus that's used at the at the next level of consumption. Yeah, I think surplus is um, kind of a core concept here. Uh, Enzo asks, so are Newman and Voluptus just libido on a different configuration? I would say kind of yes, but they seem to be distinctly defining it so that libido becomes Newman, and it's now Newman, no longer libido. Um, maybe a useful analogy would be like water undergoing phase changes, right? It's all still water as it goes from ice to liquid to steam, but it's not really the same thing. You wouldn't put a point to ice and say, oh, that's water, and mean the same thing as when you're uh, pointing to a glass of water. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Uh, Breen asked in the chat something probably worth bringing up in voice. I guess another question to consider is what is at stake in not thinking of desire in this way? What do we risk missing? I, I, hmm. I guess probably what we miss risk missing is this idea that it undergoes a qualitative qualitative change, right? Libido, the, the the energy is not operating in the same way, doing the same things as we progress from production to recording to consumption. It's first flowing and then um, kind of sweeping across a grid and then traversing that grid. Yeah, another point is that this is an example of what they talk about in uh, difference and repetition of the relationship between external difference and internal difference. External difference is seen as something that's kind of horizontal difference, whereas internal difference is seen as differences that form a hierarchy and uh, as if there were like phase transitions between uh, at, at, at different critical points that that are produced by qualitative intensities that actually change, like the changes of phase of uh, matter. Uh, so Freen says in chat, 
that uh, that also distinguishes it from Freud's notion of this undifferentiated libido. That's not a concept I know much about, though, so I'd love to hear more. Can you tell us more about that, Free? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm putting you very much on the spot there. <laughs> it's, it's okay. They were just, there was just a bit of background noise, so I was making sure that uh, it's not disruptive. Um, I, I, I'm not really clear about libido and Freud either, but I've always kind of, um, every time I've read anything about Freud, it's always come across as like this, it's just libido, like everything, like all psychic energy is just libido. So it always came across as like this monolithic, um, undifferent, undifferentiated uh, idea that didn't really have the level of nuance that um, Deleuze and Kataria are uh, giving it here. Yeah, I, I, I think it's basically only capable of one operation for Freud, and that's investment. Uh, yeah, and probably like just death instinct and eros or, or whatever. So um, still quite like not very, not as. Uh, but I think also libido for Freud is also very subject centered, I guess, uh, or the subject as Freud understands the subject. Whereas for Deleuze and Gattari, if you are going to have like this completely desubjectivized notion of desire, you also have to make that attendant change in the notion of like desire as well uh, mm -hmm. and the subject as well, because you can't do one and leave the other intact, I suppose. Right, which is, which is why they uh, turn libido into this principle of flow instead of yeah. kind of stock that I hold in some other thing. Yeah. See, one of the things they don't do is they don't tell us where these different differentiations they make come from. And so it, it leaves us guessing what to relate them to. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. It's just kind of like, oh, and then this happens. And we're like, oh. Oh, okay, I guess that happens. Why? Uh, never mind, we'll just follow along. So one of the things about flow, is there such a thing as laminar flow? So uh, in laminar flow, all resistance is lost. And so when they're designing airplanes and cars sometimes, they uh, put them in wind chambers so that they can get rid of the turbulence that, that, that just kind of naturally occurs by changing the shape of the thing. So, uh, you know, one way of thinking about this is that, you know, if libido is flow that's cut up, then that's going to create a bunch of turbulence. And, but there's an idealized flow, which is um, laminar. And so one way of thinking about it is that the Newman could be like laminar flow. But then that leaves the question of what, what the, you know, the voluptual flow would be. I have no idea. So I, I um... This uh, concept of laminar flow, which uh, just to give an example for anyone unfamiliar, 
if you turn your sink on just a little bit and you see this crystal clear column of water, that's that's laminar flow. If you turn it up more and it starts like bubbling and frothing, that's turbulent flow. Um, I the the idea of laminar flow reminds me of how they talked about the uh, body without organs originally, with uh, its smooth, slippery, undifferentiated surface. Yeah, good point. Um, and its body without organs that comes up at this stage, right? Yeah, the the body without organs is um, what sets the stage for the disjunctive uh, synthesis. Um, and, and they do talk about an undifferentiated flow across the surface of the body without organs. Um, it's This seems to precede the transformation into Newman, but also seems to be a, a condition for it. So if we could figure out what the voluptuous, <laughs> what that would be past laminar flow, maybe we'd be somewhere near understanding this concept. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting connection. I, I'm not sure if it, um, yeah. I'm not sure how much we can carry it back into the model. See, the uh, voluptuous is the hedonistic. I mean, that's just the Latin. Uh, so there's a lot of chatter happening in the text chat. Let's try to get back in sync with that. Um, Begum asked, can we consider libido as the raw material? Can Newman and Voluptus be transformed back into libido? To which Freen says, I'm not sure, but in that schema, what happens to excess? It doesn't get immediately reincorporated. Um, there's a lot happening. I'm sorry. If someone wants to help me get caught back up. Well, I mean, one way you could, one thing we could do is we could use the idea of falling back on. In other words, if the if the lamina, I mean, the the, the libido is just the, the raw flow that gets cut up by the desiring machines, and then when you do this uh, disjunctive synthesis, you produce a kind of like uh, another uh, lane for the flow to occur in. And and they're associating that with numina, and if you say it's like laminar flow, uh, well, okay, so you know, I mean, another analogy, which is kind of a very uh, kind of gross one, is uh, in traffic on the freeway. There's these carpool lights. So you've got the you've got the you've got the flow of traffic in the cities, and there's all. Uh, they all come to these uh, the crossroads and and intersections, and there's all this interference. And then when you get onto the freeway, you know you, you've gotten away from the inter the the interference of the uh, the streets that are crossing. And then if you get into the carpool lane, then you've got laminar flow. In other words, only a certain number of people can be in there, and the whole idea is that they're the ones who are going the long distance and, you know, they don't have to, they're, they don't have the interference of the entrances and exits to the freeway to deal with either. Um, I think I might have a mis uh, misunderstanding with that standing and I would really appreciate it if someone would clear this up for me then. Um, so is it actually libido that which is actually flowing? So I think they talk about this one line. I can't, I can't remember where. It was somewhere in section one itself, but I mentioned this. So I thought it was just flows of money 
um, energy etc that are just basically flowing through and the libido is the sort of transcendental property of desire that that allows all these connections to be made allows the flows to be made for the process of production yeah i i think i was incorrect in in saying that it is libido which flows um because they they call libido the uh, labor of uh, desiring production um so if we if we can kind of unpack that um marxian analogy um so let's see labor is not what flows in commodity production right it's it's um what transforms a product it transforms um materials into products and uh, invests them with value in doing so um it's kind of what what keeps things moving from the beginning of the pipe to the end of the pipe so i i to to, have, to do work you have to have energy yeah although in in the case of uh marxian economics work is energy um it is it is the it is the wellspring of energy um because because of course labor power is simply purchased on the market um so then for for desiring production i i think we could imagine libido as being like little workers lining the the uh, pipes of these desiring machines to cart the flows along uh to their to their next transformation from from food to shit or whatever so yeah i i think libido is the uh is the motive force and therefore kind of inseparable from the flow but not identical to that which flows uh, i think um, lou wanted to uh jump in the voice yes chain. let me make sure lou has permissions all right lou you have the guest speaker permission you should be able to unmute at will So I just like to go back and revisit the libido Newman and voluptus or the hedonistic. Well, since uh since we've taken this uh aside, why don't I just go ahead and read out what it was Lou Okay, uh, sure. was going to read because although I see Lou's mic open now. Hello? Uh can you hear me? Yes, hello. Uh, okay. Yes, I muted my microphone on multiple levels. <laughs> so <laughs> um, this section I posted is from um, Elizabeth Gross' introduction to Lacan. And um, it's from where she discusses how uh, Lacan talks about or adopts Freud's notions of the ego. And the point here is that Freud kind of has two concepts of the ego. One realist conception of the ego and this other um, narcissist conception of the ego, where the realist ego is this um, conception of the ego where the ego is basically... Um, this this uh, this entity between the two combatants reality and the id and kind of tries to um uh, bring this uh, bring these two together and um the um 
narcissist conception of the ego is the one that Lacan then um, emphasizes and is the one that Gauss describes here in the section I posted. So um, she writes, Freud conceives of the narcissistic ego as a storehouse of libido, a kind of psychic repository or dam where libido can be stored from its various sources throughout the body in the anticipation of finding appropriate objects in which it could be invested. Libidinal tributary flows out of this reservoir into external objects, including its own body, or up absorbed back from external objects. The shape of the ego is, as it were, contingent on the degree or amount of libido invested in others or stored in the ego. In this hydraulic model, Freud presumes that the ego has a more or less fixed quantity of libidinal cathexis at its disposal. It is able to either invest libido in objects, object libido, or to retain libido within itself, ego libido. The more of one is employed, the more the other becomes depleted. On this model, the ego has no direct relation to reality and no privileged access to the data of perception. It is primary relations. Its primary relations are libidinal, based on a pleasure rather than dictates of reality. It is not an entity, agency, or psychical content for the ego is constituted by relations with others. Indeed, its self-identity is not given th through feelings, sensations, or experience, but is always mediated by others. If the ego is based on relations between others and its own body, then the, its plasticity of form is easy to understand. The ego is dependent on various libidinal investments for its outlines and features. And thus, we form the idea of there being an original cathexis of the ego from which some is later given off to objects, but which fundamentally persists and is related to object cathexis much as the body of an amoeba is related to the pseudopodia which it puts out. This last section with the pseudopodia is directly quoted from Freud. Um, I'm looking at, I'm looking for what text exactly, but I might have to scroll back in the PDF to the end, so I'm not going to do that right now. So that's that's really interesting to read from a Deleuze-Guattarian perspective because it's kind of uh, picking out some of the places where they are, in a sense, good Freudians, right? The, the ego is not some given. It is a cathexis of libido, implying that libido is, at first, not differentiated into ego and non-ego. Yeah, that's a good point. And so uh, that, that kind of in turn, puts into question that, that entire uh, reservoir model of libidinal investment, where we, we can't presume that there is a, a damned reservoir, um, although we, we may recognize that this is something which can develop and is kind of the neuro, normal neurotic development. Uh, but rather, the, the base state of libido is uh, these, what are called in that quote, uh, libidinal tributaries. Um, 
but without it without a core reservoir right just a network of of uh little streams yeah the other model <clears throat> besides the reservoir is the model of the uh, you know the, the 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 streams of water just coming out of the rock <clears throat> as sources So on, on this reading, it, it seems like um, their use of libido is, is actually quite similar to Freud's. It just decenters this reservoir. The, the operation is, is the same, just without presupposing this place where it flowed from. So it's a weird libidinal materialism for them, to say the least. At least when it comes when it comes to losing Katsari. Uh, so Enzo has signed off, but had a question that uh, I, I think is a nice one to carry forward from here. Is the phase transition analogy also adequate on the viscosity and liquidity we saw in Chapter Two, Section Two? Uh, so, scrolling back to that, does anyone remember what that was about? They said that it was um, the libido can it can show up in different ways in the conversation of the of the psychoanalytic uh, meeting. So sometimes the 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 uh, there was viscosity in the conversation. Other times there was liquidity, and they were kind of nihilistic opposites. Right, so I suppose the question would be, what does it mean exactly for it to be too viscous or too liquid? This implies kind of differentiable character of different bodies of libido. Well, the, the thing about viscosity and liquidity is that, it, you know, it's a kind of density function of, of something that's liquid. It's not uh, going to an, another phase through a critical point. Yeah, it's, it's the difference between, you know, honey and oil. Yeah. So that, that, that's a subsidiary difference from the one that we're talking about, where it actually changes phase in some way. But I, I just like to go back and try this analogy based on what we were just saying, which was that, you know, you have... Uh, car manufacturers and dealerships and those are the sources of the of the cars right and then people buy the cars and they they drive around in the streets and there's all this interference as you come up to the uh, come up the street and so you know highways are kind of like this uh, amazing uh, efficiency that's possible if you get rid of that interference and so I just like to try the idea that going for the libido is the, just the traffic within the streets and all that interference between the different um, between the different traffic flows in a grid pattern of the streets, and then you introduce the highway, and that's like a, a phase transition where you have uh, suddenly a bunch of efficiency that you didn't have otherwise. And then you've got the carpool lane that gives you even more efficiency. And maybe that's like this difference between libido and Newman and uh, the voluptus. 
Um, sorry, is is this the paragraph that Enzo was talking about? Because um, it seems like what Deleuze and Gattari are reproaching here is the fact that um, because they, they mentioned the rock of castration in inverted commas. So I guess what they're trying to say here as a critique of Freud is that it's not that there is like this, um, that there is this rock of castration, uh, but in fact, it's actually the qualitative difference of libido itself uh, that creates this obstacle. Um, instead of there being this really sort of uh, stagnant idea of, of castration and so on. Uh, and it is this qualitative difference of uh, desire that um, Freud actually hits up against rather than this bedrock of castration and which he can't grasp in um, analysis terminable and um, interminable. I don't know, that's my um, understanding, I guess. Yeah, I suppose I never fully understood um, how exactly uh, Deleuze and Guattari explain the, these differences that uh, earlier psychoanalysts were talking about in that section. But but here here they're talking about resistances, which are kind of like you know things that are going to stop the flow one way or another. Well, I, th I think uh, one thing that they would say about resistance is that um, what psychoanalysts term resistance are, in some cases at least, because uh, it is a very general concept, in some cases that's the, um, the normal imminent operation of the unconscious. Uh, in particular, the uh, uh, inclusive disjunction, um, as opposed to the exclusive disjunction saying, yes, I have been my mother and my father. Uh, yes, those are little girls, but there are also birds. Um, this is the resistance to edibilization that Freud got so pissy about. Yeah, and, and then they go into like um, Andre Green's type 1, type 2, um, like different forms of... Um, three types of sessions, yeah. It's kind of interesting that they talk about the rock of castration, you know, something that you can't pass at all, and then the next thing is the conflict, and then the next thing is these non-localizable resistances. Um, another thing that just came to mind was, because um, just above that section, there's a quote uh, that says, in Freud's analysis, um, sorry, we prefer not to follow a recent suggestion that it would be better to translate analysis finite, analysis uh, infinite. Uh, since finite, infinite is almost mathematical or um, logic, whereas the problem is concrete, can analysis be ended? Can it be terminated? Yes or no? So uh, this also kind of harkens back to uh, an interview of Guattari's that I read recently where he says, look, if analysis is not working for you, um, keep a deadline of like six months and just quit. Like there is no, you don't have to constantly do this weird self-indulgent thing that Freud is doing. Think about like, oh, what is this rock of castration? Okay, like what do we do with this problem and so on. He just says there's a definite answer and uh, uh, and this is it. So yeah, because um, he was quite sensitive to this sort of idea that Lacanians can be manipulative. That's the exact 
quote that he this exact quote from the interview that um, if it if it goes on for too long there's something something's going wrong there's something uh, is a miss in the analysis but the, what that quote ends with is this idea of the quantity flows of the libido that the uh, you know at 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 base they're they're they've got this perfect continuity and then the desiring machines cut up that perfect continuity of flow, the kind of ultimate, you know, laminar flow at the basis of everything, then the desiring machines cut that up. And, uh, and then they are connected to each other, and that's the connective synthesis. Well, and the, the cutting and the connection are, are the same thing as well. Yeah. And, the, and then, but then the disjunctive is when you create a separate chain of these desiring machines connecting to each other. Yeah, where you can relate one chain to another. Yeah. So that's what I was talking about, like columns and rows. You know, if you have a connection down uh, across a row or down a column, if you move from a column to another column, you're producing rows. If you, and that's what transversal means. Yeah, and I know you've been uh, using uh, category theory to try to interpret them. I, this makes me wonder if linear algebra could help as well. I would imagine it's even better than category theory because that was, uh, you know, one thing that uh, I believe Deleuze was interested in, linear algebra. And that goes back to the DeLanda conversation, you know, I mean— it, uh, you know, a, a different in a different conversation that's going on uh, on Wednesdays. There's the they're reading the Delanda book, and uh, and so it's talking about the mathematics that corresponds to the different things that Deleuze and Guattari are saying. If you're interested in more about that, uh, does Delanda go into like some of the things like connective synthesis and disjunctive? Synthesis? specifically for anti-Oedipus? Because I know he's going in from difference and repetition, but how much does he draw on from anti-Oedipus? Okay, I haven't seen anything from anti-Oedipus yet. I think, I think it's mostly difference and repetition. Yeah, I don't think he draws upon uh, anti-Oedipus um, at all. It's mostly, yeah, difference and repetition. But, but, you know, I just like the—this is a point I keep making, is that, you know, Zizek is taking Lacan's work and applying it to culture, and it's very uh, fruitful, you know. And—but uh, that's—hasn't happened with Deleuze's work in the same way. But what has been very fruitful is the Delanda-type interpretation relating it back to math. Uh, yes, yeah, and he also mentions in the introduction that um, he's doing to Deleuze what Deleuze did to like other philosophers, which is like a kind of uh, taking the philosopher from behind and so on. So it's not entirely um, like faithful to Deleuze in the sense, but it is like a yeah, it's a Deleuzean project, nevertheless. Tying it back to the chapter that we read uh, yesterday. Um, there's this. Uh, specific... that, huh? Go ahead. 
Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to tie back to the chapter that we read yesterday. There's this idea that I couldn't really get out of my head. And that was uh, Oedipus and ontotheology. And that's ontotheology as Heidegger used it. Because ever since that line where they talk about Oedipus is the metaphysics of psychoanalysis, uh, there's a, it reminded me of uh, Heidegger talking about how ontotheology is, is this thing where metaphysics is trying to, you know, get the theory of everything the the one answer to all problems that's this universal sort of thing that can be answered and so is there a direct parallel between oedipus and that well i don't know about a direct parallel but i agree with you that the, the, the they're related they're related concepts for sure i mean basically ontotheology you know, one of the things Heidegger goes into is that the concept of God, it's always the supreme being. It's a being. God is a being. And uh, and so ontotheology is about, you know, not just ontology, but connecting into what's the concept of the supreme being. Um, I think the parallels between Heidegger and uh... Deleuze would kind of begin and end with their, like their critique of the history of metaphysics. But for Heidegger, um, he still remains very like anthropocentric. So that would be completely diametrically opposed to what Deleuze and Qatari are trying to do, right? Like, um, I, I, yeah. Another uh, kind of initiative like that is logocentrism from uh, Derrida. I'm sorry, what exactly is logocentrism? I'm not super well read in Derrida, so I don't really know. It has to do with uh, speech and writing and how the the, the tradition is uh, emphasizes speech and, uh, you know, uh, does not uh, valorize writing, even though the tradition itself is based on writing. You know, I mean, like we're reading these books. If they weren't written down, we wouldn't be able to concentrate on them like we are. If it was just speech, and here we're we're turning the the writings that we're that we're focusing on into speech. These recordings. Also, it's the privileging of of speech over text. Yeah. One of the interesting differences that Dan Smith points out in his um, book, uh, in his collection of essays between Deleuze and Derrida, uh, and he sums it up really well in one line. It's it's that Derrida kind of accepts the limitations of the language of metaphysics and says that, okay, you know, we have to perform this deconstructive exercise and so on, but we're kind of still stuck with this language, this baggage of like metaphysics that we've inherited. Whereas Deleuze just goes one step further and says, no, we're just going to create everything anew. And uh, like his emphasis is more on creation rather than acceptance and uh, compromise. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, a, that, that, that Dan Smith essay is one really great quote. You know that line from Dostoevsky, right? If, uh, if God is dead, everything's permitted, right? Deleuze sort of, if, when he's building all these interesting ontologies, he's saying the complete opposite. If if God is there, um, essentially everything is permitted. 
because essentially he, he's 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 going into like theology like Dun Scotus and uh, I mean all these really obscure people and he's finding these interesting almost uh, completely uh, radical ways of thinking about things and how you could apply something that has no relation to something into something else. That's how he sort of came up with the idea of univocity, in my opinion. Yeah, that definitely goes back to Duns Scotus. So, what did you think about the the section that that we read yesterday? I mean, did anyone have any specific questions about those things? Because what what we've been talking about is kind of like background and adjacent material. <clears throat> okay, so I was, um, I know I was I was talking about uh, this idea of self -contra contradictions in a system, right? Um, I know on page one fifty one they eventually say that really in this line no one's ever died from their own internal self contradictions. So, um, would it be right to say that the body without organs, in to some extent? is what almost manages these self-contradictions. I don't know. Just off the top of my head, I'd say that the body without organs is the field within which these contradictions appear. Uh, sorry, is it page 151 of the PDF? Uh, no, I think it's on, the, on my Penguin edition. Oh, okay. But I mean, they bring it up also in the in the in what we read in this at the beginning of the chapter we read yesterday about humor. So, um, in the section on page one fifty one, um, there's they are very specifically uh, very specifically talking about uh, contradictions in the marxist sense because they follow that up i don't have it in front of me right now i'm going for memory but they follow it up by talking about um, how um, capitalism will not die from fatigue so uh, they are going ba in this section. They basically go against um, this notion that there's a natural progression um, that comes from the intrinsic contradictions in capitalism. So I think we need to do some work to connect this to the contradictions we are talking about here in this section we are currently reading because I don't think this translates exactly. See, one thing that can be said is that you have all of these interferences, but, you know, there's also self-interference, and that those show up as contradictions. And and the the interesting thing about that is whenever anything is moving, it produces a, a contradiction. So, so the very fact that they're taking this this moving libido as the thing that gets cut up as the basis for all their uh, you know their their whole metaphysics says that contradictions are going to be produced. Uh, on a regular basis within the field that that that's seen as the the body without organs.
And then, and then another thing is that Lacan kind of just assumes that the the cogito, um, you know, the statement that it's saying is I am lying. So he 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 puts right at the center of the cogito a uh, uh, a self contradiction. Uh, this is according to Zizek. Uh, I think one of the parallels between this Marxist idea of uh, contradiction and uh, the body without organs, or even the three syntheses, would be that uh, for Marx, contradictions are kind of driven by their own force and they kind of resolve themselves um, once they hit against like a wall. Um, and that was, uh, and that for. Deleuze and Qatari was, it's a very eminent and materialist critique of capital and society, right? So um, there is that parallel between the force that kind of is driven by its own um, own intensities and then the way it resolves itself, uh, but giving rise to new contradictions. So of course, we can see the reworking of this in, in the body without organs and um, the syntheses. It's, it's just that... Um, at the level of the body without organs, I mean, if you're talking about contradictions there, uh, it's it's just that um, the recording process itself is open to so many interpretations, right? Like they, it could give rise to contradictions. It could uh, settle in a specific way. It could give rise to Oedipus. Like anything can happen, which is what makes it very volatile, but um, sort of unpredictable and uh, dangerous as well. I don't know if that answers the question or, yeah. Then I guess I would. Yeah. I guess I would Sorry. pose another question then, because kind of spirals off my tension. Then uh, I think they're going to talk about this later. But uh, essentially, then could we see the socius as what essentially manages the whole of society? It's what keeps society in balance, to say the least. Well, when we get up to the the socius, that's a different regime, but basically they're saying it works the same as the desiring machines. Sorry, what what was the question exactly? Um, essentially, can we can we think about the socius as uh, something that's uh, uh, keeping a system in check, right? To say to say. It's keeping things in balance, allows allows contradictions to occur. It it basically allows the system to run. It's the main driving force of the system. So I'm asking, can we think about the socius in that manner? I'd say the socius is the system in that sense. Um, so like you know, it, in our in today's society, the socius is capital as a body, um, and it's it, it is that on which the entire operation of all of society is inscribed. Uh, the um, under um, despotism or, or like monarchy, it's the the king, the despot. Everything is attributed to you know having a good king, a bad king. The king gave us this land, that kind of thing. Um, does does that clarify it at all? 
Yeah, sort of. I think they're. I, I think uh, they're definitely going to answer this later on. At least that's what I'm predicting. It's going to happen. Yeah, and the thing about uh, capital is that in its decoding and uh, recoding processes, it it does destroy and remake the socius as well, right? That's why you have these transition from uh, primitive society to capitalism and so on. It's because there is this process going on of uh, territorialization and re-territorialization that's giving birth to like different forms of socialists throughout uh, throughout history. So they're quite like historically specific in that sense. And capitalism is a particular form. Capitalism has given rise to a particular form of socialist, which is also it kind of is built upon the destruction of like previous forms of the um, socialist, I guess. It, it also it incorporates those forms even as it as it yes. dissolves them at the same time. So like we still have this kind of uh, these echoes of of the despot, um, but they're constantly being deterritorialized uh, to to re-territorialize in some way that's that's more appropriate for the current epoch. Yeah, I'd, li I'd like to mention my interpretation of that, which is that the uh, in critique of uh, uh, dialectical reason, Sartre talks about the fused group, and when Canetti and crowds in power talk about the pack, the hunting pack, that 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 that's what the socius is. It's it's the mitzah. It's what Heidegger is calling the mitzah. In other words, it's the undifferentiated social, just like the, you know, that's indefinite, just like the desiring machines are indefinite. And the two of them kind of confront each other across this threshold, which is the body without organs, which is definite. Being within, being with. Say it again. Well, isn't mid sign essentially referring to? It's 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 almost like um, how do I describe it? It's almost like being in a community, something like that, right? Yeah. You know, and and the thing is, like, com uh, family and neighborhoods and community; these are all the things that are under attack by the capitalist system. And, and institutions, they try to break down these these uh, amorphous um, social kinds of relations that exist. Yeah, and um, the the breakdown of the family, um, in in particular, is is of interest to the analysis of Oedipus, and that's uh, where Deleuze and Guattari see Lacan as as having genuinely discovered something that actually happened, which is this transformation of family from the actual mother, the actual father, the actual child to these structural symbolic operations where you don't even need a family to be subject to the imperialism of the family. Yeah, and then they say that he just, he didn't take it far enough because it kind of became like a, it sort of became a victim to the, the paralogism and, uh, and so on. Yeah, he... he 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 mapped out something that was actually happening and said, "Oh, this is you know, the nature of yeah. of human consciousness. 
Um, yeah, and he does say that okay, it, you know, the, the phallus is not like this literal bodily organ. It serves a function. Uh, it, it exists at the imaginary imaginary level and so on. But then again, he kind of um, stops short of it uh, and kind of reinscribes the entire system within the within Oedipus, while at the same time dismissing it, um, or with the intention of dismissing it. But yeah, kind of reifying it. Lou, would you like to read the the quote that you put up so we could consider it? I mean, that's just the quote we were talking about earlier. That's... Um... Uh, the death of a social machine has never been heralded by disharmony or dysfunction. On the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crisis they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate. Capitalism has learned this and has ceased doubting itself, while even socialists have abandoned belief in the possibility of capitalism's, capitalism's natural death by attrition. No one has ever died from contradictions, and the more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes, the better it works the American way. So I, I'm, I've talked about this earlier, but... Um, I think the section really needs everything around it. This, uh, this, um, um, no one has ever died from its contradiction on its own is kind of meaningless here. And this whole paragraph is just the conclusion to a longer passage that we should read if we want to talk about this quote. That's kind of why I posted it because um, I think there is a connection there to what we are reading right now, but um, we should wait with the discussion on this till we are actually there. One of the things I wanted to mention that I mentioned before in the regular reading is Graham Priest and his idea of, uh, I think it's called uh, dilatheism, um, which is the fact that the idea that contradictions are true. And so, but then there's another thing, which is contradictions being real. And, um, and it, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, the Marxist idea is that contradictions are real. They're not just true. And the, and the problem with contradictions is the explosion problem in logic, which is that you can prove anything if you, um, if you have a, a contradiction in your logical system. So the, the, the kind of corollary to that in capitalism is that you can do anything. Uh, I guess this also kind of ties in uh, this passage. It um, ties in a bit with what Mark Fisher has written about capitalism as well and its tendency to kind of just uh, um, like rather than what Marx predicted about capitalism just kind of exploding, like being a victim of its own uh, volatility, and you know, it's it's in his famous like uh, analysis of the tendency of uh, the rate of profit to fall and so on. 
uh, and you know this kind of belief that that there will the capitalism will hit like a wall and it will collapse but then mark fisher comes in and he says but that that's that didn't happen instead like capitalism kind of fed off of its own contradiction so it kind of kept incorporating them and uh, um it, instead it kind of kept expanding and it became more powerful and no one could have predicted like this uh, very uh, like this supernaturally like adaptive capacity of capitalism and so on so uh, I, I've mentioned this before. Something I really like in Zizek is his idea of the little piece of the reel, where the, the you've got a, a smooth running machine, and uh, you, a little bit of grit that gets into it can bring it to a stop. Like a uh, you put a quarter on, under the wheel of a uh, a train, and it can't start. And so the coronavirus is like that. It's this little piece of the reel that has caused the entire mechanism of uh, capitalism to come to a halt suddenly. And even in the Great Depression, we didn't have that. So the situation we're in now is kind of like this uh, confronting this little piece of the reel. Um, there's just a conversation going on in the in the chat. So, um, Mal, would you like to uh, sort of summarize for us, like, um, what the conversation is about? And uh, sorry, I I'm actually a little bit sidetracked right now. Um, what's this that uh, they're not there posted? You're free to join the voice chat if you feel like sharing it sharing this uh, this page. Um, uh, the page that I shared, uh, I was doing this reading earlier and I, I came across something that was interesting and I was trying to relate it to this last portion uh, in Anti-Oedipus. And this portion says, um, so it, it basically talks about the idea of um, Family um, in 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 the within the space within the idea of um, politics and then the protection of the child and then um, the author says that child remains the perpetual horizon of every acknowledged politics a phantasmatic uh, beneficiary of every political intervention uh, and then they they're not using um, the word child as um, not necessarily just a little child, but a metaphorical child in some senses. Even proponents of abortion rights, while promoting the freedom of women to control their own bodies, reproductive choice, recurrently frame their political struggle, mirroring their anti-abortion um, cause as a fight for our children, for our daughters and our sons. So I'm just I'm trying to understand the um, the, the um, this. Um, in reference to the, the quoted portion of Anti-Oedipus, um, where um, they're saying, I take a woman, and then the last bit is what, what is the most interesting, which is, um, which is called surmounting Oedipus, but reproducing it as well, transmitting it rather than dying all alone, incestuous, homosexual, and a zombie. I was just curious about... Um, these uh, relationships between um, capitalism, politics, um, uh, the Oedipal structure, and reproduction, both literal and metaphorical reproduction, or literal and structural reproduction. 
Yeah, I guess that's definitely interesting. You're obviously going to get a lot of transfers. I think the word that uh, caught my attention was uh, in the passage that you shared. And I've heard, like, I've read about this book, but I haven't gotten around to reading it yet. This is Lee Edelman. Uh, is, that the, is that the book? Um, yeah, yeah, it's the uh, reproductive okay. something. Yeah. Could could you put it in the uh, chat, the uh, title of the book and the author? Please. Yeah, put the link to it. I okay. Uh, just like um, my first impression of this is uh, is to sort of connect it to Wendy Brown, because um, and I haven't read Lee Edelman yet. So I'm just kind of making the first association that comes to mind is with Wendy Brown and her critique of uh, um, feminism or feminists kind of resorting to the state um, for help and for uh, kind of directing their demands to, while at the same time, you know, existing in a situation that has been created by the state, like this condition of... Uh, being disenfranchised and so on, right, um, to simplify the point. So that is the kind of uh, contradiction or the, the tension that Wendy Brown points to. Um, connecting it to anti-Oedipus, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that connection can be made yet, but um, I guess it's something to think about. But one of the things that caught my attention in the passage is the line that talks about the unthinkable. Um, my project stakes its claim to be the very space that politics makes unthinkable, the space outside the framework within which politics we know it appears. So the outside is actually a very interesting and important concept in Deleuze, Foucault, and Blanchot, where um, you are kind of, the outside is that which um, is going, it's the condition for articulating new worlds. But at the same time, it will never be exhausted by those new worlds itself. So it's quite it's quite interesting. Like it exists on the in this tension between the virtual and the actual. Uh, the un, you know the, this whole notion of the it's quite an interesting and it is something that I'm still trying to unpack. Um, so I think that is what ca caught my attention, which is um, the outside uh, and the unthinkability and you know thinking of like new worlds and so on and which is very it's quite central to uh, Deleuze actually. But that is something that I will kind of work on and get back to you about um, then or there. Um, the, um, the way I related it to anti-Oedipus was this um, sort of recording and reproduction on the body of the Sosius, in, if that makes any sense, um, takes place. And um, um, the, this particular school of thought, sort of the um, understanding the outside is, is trying to establish an outside to that that process of recording and um, reproduction on the body of the sources. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure, but maybe you can DM me your question and I can get back to you because, yeah, I'm kind of like yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah, I'd just like to make a comment <laughs> about the process in general, which is that, uh, you know, uh, you know, in what we're doing, we're going back and forth between <clears throat> the spoken and the and the written, and there's a there's a disjunction between them, but within those streams, there's continuities, 
But then in the conversation, you know, we'll have these trains of thought that someone will bring up a question, we'll talk about it for a while, and then we'll switch to something completely different. Those that's the disjunction when we switch to something very different. When we when we continue the same thought of the other person and try to build on it or respond to it or whatever, that's the connective synthesis. But then when we jump to another thought, that's the disjunctive synthesis. And the hard thing is for us to realize <clears throat> what is the what is the uh, the conjunctive synthesis, you know, and I think the conjunctive synthesis, just like on the chessboard, is us as individuals sitting here relating to each other and 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 having some kind of presence to each other through the medium of the conversation and the textual chat. So I'm just trying to relate these things that you know we're talking about to what we're actually doing right now. Yeah, I think that's a great example to bring up. I mean, I mean, like, if you if you're gonna imagine like a world without a body, without organs, that'll just be like the infant sucking sucking on the mother's breast, and then allowing that to transfer to the anus, and that whole pro it'll just be this one singular process of the infant continuously sucking on the breast. He would never go away from that, right? Um, and I think the conjunctive synthesis. That's also been the hardest part to, for me because I think it's it's sort of if you, if you reread uh, the first chapter enough, it's sort of easy to visualize what they're finally getting at with the two first two synthesis. But I just struggled to visualize the third one because I guess it, the third one has to do with the conflict between like the almost the two spheres. Yeah, the third one is so so hard to wrap one's head around. It's it's a lot more abstract than the others. So I'd like to try another analogy that I thought of the other day. So the analogy is uh, keys and locks and doors. So the, the key, putting the key into the lock, <clears throat> that's like the connective synthesis. And the, uh, the bolt going into the frame at the the hole, there's a there's a faceplate there and a hole with a hole in it and the hole was bored into the frame, and so that bolt going into the frame is like the disjunctive synthesis, and the the fact that you can then open the door and walk through it is like the 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 the, the conjunctive synthesis. The conjunctive synthesis is the fact that the door separates the inside from the outside, but is not part of either one. It's, it's the membrane between the two, which is qualitatively different from the inside of the house and the outside of the house. And so when you think about it, doors with locks that open that we can walk through are something that we all have, we all relate to every day. And, the, uh, and it just so happens that there's something analogous to these different syntheses that are to, are together in that process of locking and unlocking the door, and then the bolt sliding in so that the the the, the door can can move freely. The door moving freely is like the disjunctive synthesis, and then the fact that the door separates the inside from the outside, and that when you open the door, you can walk through. That's like the uh, the uh, 
conjunctive synthesis. And then the fact that I decide to walk through, that's when the ego comes in. Is I'm deciding I'm going to walk through. I choose to walk through. Right, because the conjunctive synthesis is that it's that retro retroactive realization of how the you know how those Nietzschean wills affected you, right? You could think about it that way. See, I, I guess I guess what I what I keep trying to say is that we need to come up with analogies that where we can see these things actually operating in the world. And all of these analogies are not going to be very good, but they they approximate what uh, perhaps Deleuze and Guattari are talking about. Yeah, I remember you tried to do you you were doing that with the lightning. Um, this was a while back, but you had that good example that like it was about lightning and the celibate machine. Yeah, yeah, that was another one. <clears throat> and I think that if we could if we could all try to think about our world and how how maybe these different syntheses appear within our own experience and bring up these kinds of analogies, then that's to me the where the real source of the uh, of the understanding is going to be because once you have some analogies like that, then you kind of don't need the theory anymore to a certain extent because you kind of have a direct seeing of the of of the of the differences between these syntheses and how they work together to produce phenomena. Yeah, it's it's kind of a shame that their uh, core motivating examples for the celibate machine are so inaccessible, relying on some obscure other theorist. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then it helped me in this book that I've been reading uh, recently when they uh, start talking about Schopenhauer and how it seems like Schopenhauer is the real um, source for all of these Freudian uh, uh, mechanistic analogies that he comes up with. And then when you reduce it to the, these ideas back to Schopenhauer, you see that there's a very specific uh, emblem of the body without organs at Schopenhauer. Uh, and the will is the noumena. The will is the noumena that Kant's talking about within the within the within the self. And and the in that sense, the body without organs is just the body of the human being that we we see outside, right, objectively. But then we also have subjective experience of. And so we can attach meaning to what's happening outside because of our subjective experience of the same body. Although the uh, the self-identity of the body without organs does precede subjectivity. And, and well, okay, so in in uh, this this brings us back to the non-representable for 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 Schopenhauer, the uh, the will is non-representable. So he says, you know, the world as will and representation, uh, uh, world as, the world as will and representation. The will is the non-representable part, and the, the world is the representations that we build. And so the will is prior to the arising of subjectivity. So what would you identify as will uh, in drawing this analogy? Schopenhauer said that the will is the noumena. 
within us. You know, the subject, uh, Kant said there's noumena out there in the world. So Schopenhauer said the, pneuma, the will is the noumena within us. Right, but how do we bring this back to Deleuze and Guattari? Uh, they have this idea of the body without organs. And so it's almost as if, you know, the, different, the relationship between Freud and, and uh, Schopenhauer is that Schopenhauer talks about the will as if it is a unified thing, whereas Freud has all these treeb, which is uh, translated as instinct, but actually treeb is a much broader and more interesting concept than instinct. And so the, it's almost as if the, instead of you see the will as a single thing, in uh, Schopenhauer, in Freud, he sees all of these trees, all of these instincts, um, as being a kind of collective. So then, do you see Deleuze and Guattari as as siding with Freud on that? Uh, yeah, they're closer to Freud. But it turns out that there was another theorist called Herbart who had a, a theory more like Deleuze and Guattari's theory that was a textbook that Freud read. Yeah, I saw your message. I saw your uh, link on that. I couldn't find anything on it. Do you know where you could read up more on the Herbert guy? Well, I've been looking for it, and uh, I found a, a, a couple of articles about it, but I could only, you know— they were online, and they, I, I could only see part of it. There's, there's a book called Monadologies, and there's a whole chapter in there. I could only read with like about a third of it uh, that explains his monadology. It's, it turns out that the book that his monadology is developed in is not translated. Uh, but what is translated is the, um, his textbook on psychology. And when you, I read that, you know, day before yesterday or whatever. And uh, and it's very similar to uh, to to Deleuze and Guattari. You know, I mean, there's a lot of similarities there, except you know the the difference is that he defines these monads, which are he calls the soul. And so, if you instead see those monads that are the soul as being um, you know, related to Plato's view of the soul, which is a three-part three soul, then if you substitute that into Herbart's system, then you kind of have the basis of Freudianism with the id, ego, and superego, so forth. And it would be just like uh, Deleuze to go back to someone like Herbart, because, he, you know, He's very in. Uh, uh, he says good things about Tarde, who had a monadology, and then he wrote a book on Leibniz's monadology. And he, you know, he's into monadologies. I think he's also very specifically into Leibniz um, and his differential uh, mathematics. Yeah, I agree. And so, I mean, it would be just, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm starting to come to the conclusion that it's the non-mentioned references that are the most important in Deleuze. I mean, I've never heard of Herbart before, but I'm reading this other book about the, uh, 
the relationship between uh, it's actually a, about the relationship between Freud and Husserl and the other existential phenomenologists. But before that, he has a whole chapter where he talks about the relationship between Freud and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And I always thought that Freud just got everything from Nietzsche, but it, it, I was quite surprised when I found out that, you know, the relationship to Schopenhauer is much stronger than the relationship to Nietzsche. Yeah, I have a German introduction to Freud here, and um, that makes this connection as well. Basically identifying um, Schopenhauer's will with um, Freud's instincts or drives. Yeah, do you know more about the the Trieb and the, what it's um, how how it means more than the instinct? Um, not really. As I, I could talk about connotations, but I think, uh, but specifically um, as it is employed in psychoanalytic theory, I don't know because. My knowledge on psychoanalytic theory is basically a month old. I started um, with psychoanalysis really just But now. what does the word treat mean just in general? It's very much drive. It's less instinct and more drive. It's oh, okay. That's good to know. Interesting. Sounds like it might even be cognate with drive. Other phonemes in there. I'd recommend looking at Schopenhauer because it, once I once I realized that Schopenhauer was kind of like could be the real target that Deleuze is trying to uh, you know use as the basis of what he's saying then that made the whole thing a lot more interesting to me. Did you find an, uh, an online copy of Herbert Herbert's uh, monodology, by the way? I'm trying to look for it. Is it I, don't know, I don't know if it's been translated to English. So, yeah, the, the philosophy book that he wrote is not translated, but the, the um, textbook on psychology, I linked it uh, in my blog, uh, section, I think. I think I stuck it in there. I'm just having a look through that right now. But it's quite interesting. It talks all about series and the relationships between series. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking about analyzing it to see whether these syntheses are in there. You know, I don't think that Deleuze and Guattari came up with all this just out of nothing. I think that there's a basis for what they're saying. Right. It's about oh, wrapping up. Sorry. Do you have a question? I was going to head out. It's about 5 a.m. here, so I'm going to go back to bed. Yeah. So if anyone has any follow-up questions, um, yeah, feel free to either DM me or post them in the follow-up questions. Um, I don't know. So I think we can, uh, yeah, disband for now. All right. Good session, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.